Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. The game at halftime was tied 2-2, two to two, and we were in our huddle poolside, and people were leaning over from the stands going, bravo, we didn't know the Canadians were so good. This is amazing. How, gosh, this is, what a surprise. Fantastic. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Oh! You can do it! You can do it! Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant! But that is an Olympic champion. Ready? Hello and welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello, how are you today? I am doing okay in my self-isolation. As am I. Well, it's a little rough, I gotta be honest. This, this has been a tough week, and I'm sure it's been a tough week for a lot of people. So we are here to bring a little levity, a little joy. A little distraction from the everyday. Even though the Olympics has its own distraction with what's going on with... We will, uh, we will cover okay. that, but for first, we will not talk about coronavirus for the first half of the show. No, we're going to talk about the 70s. Which and is totally groovy. Yes. <laughs> so last week we talked about Innsbruck 1976, and we're going to touch base with that after our interview, because I forgot to mention something last week and I uh, want to tell you the story. But this week we are moving over to the Summer Games and talking with John McLeod. John competed in water polo for Team Canada at the Montreal 1976 Olympics, and we talked with him about how he made it onto the team and what it was like competing for the home crowd. Take a listen. John, welcome back to the show. And tell us, first off, how and when did you get involved in water polo? Because although the sport was big in Europe, it wasn't really big in Canada at the time. Uh, no, it, it wasn't. The Canadian team had participated in the Munich 72 games, but they were a late entry because a country pulled out of the water polo competition. So the Canadians were the next in line to go and they uh, went to play in Munich. I don't believe they won a game, but it obviously was a good building block to help the program and give the players, many of whom stuck around for 1976, a, a great experience in international competition. So my route was a little bit different. I had always been involved in age group swimming through, started at the local YMCA in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and then swam with a team at the Centennial Pool in uh, Halifax. And then my father packed us up and moved us to Southern California. So I continued to uh, swim with the YMCA. We found a local YMCA there. And I was, I believe, probably in the early spring of eighth grade, and I saw a notice on the student bulletin board posted by the high school swim coaches saying that if you were interested in swimming in high school, they were having an upcoming swim meet for all the incoming ninth graders from the junior highs around that would feed into this high school. 
So I thought, well, wow, uh, you know, I should go check this out and swim. I've been swimming at the YMCA. So I went to the high schools and participated in the swim meet. And the coaches came up to three of us boys after the meet and said, hey, uh, you guys did great. Uh, we look forward to having you in the fall. But in the fall, we start with water polo. And so we have our high school teams involved in a summer league program and wondering if you three would like to learn water polo and get a jump up on the sport coming into high school. So, uh, you know, we asked a few questions, one of which was, well, will our parents have to take us to the games? And the coach said, no, you know, we have some sophomores who have their driver's license. And I thought, wow, hang out with sophomores in high school and get driven around to these things. I'm in. So I learned the game that summer and then started in uh, high school and was very fortunate in that the high school I attended was not a powerhouse in aquatics in any way. But one of the coaches and the head coach of the water polo program was a gentleman by the name of Ron Crawford. And Ron was a three-time U.S. Olympic water polo player, having played in 56, uh, 60, and 64, and you would never, never know it. He never spoke of it. We just sort of heard about this secondhand, a very humble man, but very driven, and the one thing that I take away and that all of his players have taken away is that he stressed first academics and family over the sport, and that was drilled into us for four years and we ended up having a good run through the four years that I was there. My senior year, I was chosen to the second uh, All-Southern California team and was selected to the All-American team and was heading to the University of California at Santa Barbara. Well, before that, I had written a letter to the Canadian Water Polo Association introducing myself, letting them know that I was still a Canadian citizen and asking uh, if it was possible for me to try out for the team. My parents didn't really have any inkling that I had done this, and all of a sudden I got a letter back a few months later saying, yes, we will consider you for a tryout, and here's the deal. Uh, buy your ticket. If you make the team, we'll reimburse you your airfare. If you don't make the team, you're out the money. So I sat down with my parents talked them into allowing me to go, and it was scheduled for the Thanksgiving of my freshman year in college. So I had just finished my freshman year at UC Santa Barbara and had uh, you know, been competing there, and, and so I was in shape and, and ready to go. And I flew to Quebec City, where the team was centralized at Laval University, and here was this sort of bleach blonde, young, tanned guy walking on the deck and all these players that hadn't seen the sun since the end of August. And they all looked at me and said, oh, boy, we're going to have fun with him for the next four days. And they, you know, they worked me over pretty good. Uh, I really had to, you know, rise up and prove myself and not take any cheap shots, not, you know, just go full bore for four days. So I was then taken over uh, or into a meeting room after the four days before I left. And the coach and the team manager and our coach was a gentleman by the name of Dezu Lemhini, who is in the International Water Polo Hall of Fame. And he coached uh, the Hungarian team, played in Hungary, also coached the French national team. And our team manager was also there who was of uh, Hungarian origin. So he translated because uh, Coach Lemhini's English was not great, but they said that, that we would like you to go home, pack your bags, and come back here in a week, and so I went home and finished up the first quarter at UC Santa Barbara, took a leave of absence, and said goodbye to my parents for a few weeks, and came back for Christmas for a couple of days, and then back. The team was centralized in Quebec City at Laval University, so I joined the team there. So at this point, the Canadian water polo program was very small, kind of in its infancy, though you did have a centralized team at the university. What were the facilities like? What were the conditions for the team? 
the facilities were absolutely fantastic. The pool at Laval University was a 50-meter by 25-yard pool with a movable bulkhead in the middle. And so our practices would go on in the deep end while some classes would be taking place in the shallow end, some swimming classes for the students at Laval University. Also, one of the amusing things was that our coach could be quite a showman. He was in his 60s at the time, and again, broken English and broken French. But when a crowd would come into the pool arena area, there were some, uh, there was a balcony of stands and seating, and uh, the, a tour group might come in that was touring the university facilities, and our coach, whom we affectionately dubbed the old man, uh, when the old man would see the group, he would just go into a rage of yelling and screaming at us, and you know, all of us in the water would just be rolling our eyes, or we'd see a tour group coming, and we'd say, okay, get ready, here it comes. So he would put on a show for about five or ten minutes to be the, the hard, tough coach that when really, and he was a terrific coach, and and he was a yeller when he needed to be. But for the most part, he was a very civilized person. So, I will say that the one thing that he did for me was for the first month that I was there, uh, the rest of the team would leave at about eleven thirty or eleven forty-five for for our lunch break, and then we'd be back at I think two o'clock and go until five. And so he would jump in the water with me for about 45 minutes to an hour. And all we would do is I would throw the ball to him. If it, uh, if it didn't hit his hand precisely, exactly, he would let it drop and I would have to chase that ball and then get it into his hand. And then, but if he did catch it, then he would throw it elsewhere and I'd have to chase the ball and again, throw it back to him. And, and I just did that for 45 minutes to an hour for a month and, and the level that it increased my conditioning, number one, and what it did for my ball control and you know my hand coordination was just absolutely fantastic. So at the time, I sort of felt deprived that here I can't join my new teammates for lunch, but this was very worthwhile. So that Thanksgiving tryout was which year? That was 1975. Okay, so this is months beforehand uh yes. you're joining the team yes they had a player that for personal reasons dropped out and they they knew what was available throughout the rest of the sort of canadian roster uh, of players but uh i think that you know, as i said i had gone into pretty deep detail as to who i was what my size was and and uh they were intrigued so and you had that golden tan <laughs> yeah, that really helped, which faded very quickly. <laughs> yeah, Quebec City, not known for its, you know, sunny beaches. No, I can remember leaving for a European trip on the 5th of May and being in a bus driving, a team bus driving by snowbanks. Uh, just, wow. <laughs> I still have that vivid memory. So, So how many people were on the team? So we had a full roster of, I can't remember if it was either 14 or 16, definitely 14, probably 16. And that was probably my toughest moment in sports when the roster was cut down from that 14 or 16 to the 11 that would represent in the games. Uh, Our team opted to only take uh, one goalie. So if our goalie got injured, we were in a lot of trouble. Fortunately, he did not. And uh, But here, uh, they put us all in one room and then made the announcement. And here were teammates that you had bonded with. And granted, my time with them was very short, but it was here were guys that had been trying to make the Olympics for a long time that were in tears that didn't make it. And these were your friends and teammates and, and you couldn't really be happy for yourself because of the devastation by some of the other players that now had to say to themselves, well, I need to wait another four years. And then another four years came. And unfortunately uh, the, the uh, Moscow Olympics were boycotted by Canada. So I did have some, uh, a couple of teammates that did stick around uh, until 1984 and played there. And, and so kudos to them uh, that they 
made their way through to Los Angeles. So, but it was probably my toughest day in sports to have to sit with my teammates and, and very good friends and, and see them being devastated. How far ahead of the games did that happen? Oh, I would say that that was when we got back from that European trip. I think there were a few of us that were on the bubble, myself included, uh, and we were sort of, uh, I would say, the younger athletes on the team. We were all probably 18, 19, 20 in, in that range. And so we had a couple of instances where in a couple of tournaments that we were playing in Europe, I specifically remember one again in West Germany where we were, had a tournament and the coach opted to play only the juniors uh, or only the younger kids. And so, uh, and fortunately in that game, I do remember myself and a teammate that ultimately did make the final 11. We connected together on three or four goals, just me passing to him, he passing to me. And, and so ultimately we were the two youngest that, uh, ended up going. He was 18 and just turning 19, and I had uh, just turned 19. So, yeah, so it, it was uh, based, I think, on that tournament. And actually, I, in, in knowing some of my older teammates have since told me that, you know, yes, you were one of the kids on the bubble, and, and that was a turning point for you when, uh, when that took place. Yeah, you don't know it at the time. No, you don't. And again, it just... It was a very tough situation all sitting in a room together. I, I still, t to this day, wonder why didn't they just call us in individually and let us know, yay or nay, whether we had made the team. So to do it in a group situation, because nobody could really be happy. You know, there, you were saying goodbye to five or six guys that, you know, were, were with you on airplanes, with you in dorms, with you in the pool every day that you went to battle with. Uh, you battled against and you tried to make each other better. And uh, it was just a really, really tough situation. During this time in the run-up to the games, what was your living situation like? And how was it also when you traveled? So because I was one of the last ones to join, I really, all the rest of the teammates had sort of grouped up as roommates in different apartments around Quebec City. And so I got an apartment by myself in the same complex as some teammates. So I was at least around them, but I had to rent some furniture. Uh, I had to rent a television. And the tough part was that I was never there Monday through Friday. And I couldn't, because I was late to the game, I couldn't take time off to say, Hey, I need to be there to. So when the phone guy comes to hook up my phone, I need to be there so when the cable guy comes to hook up my cable, so I had none of those amenities. And I would go, I would call my parents from a payphone at the university. You know, this was before the internet days, before cell phone days. And uh, I would go to Europe, you know, not having spoken to them for, you know, we'd go for six weeks at a shot. And I just wonder, you know, what my parents went through. Like, where is our son? You know, where <laughs> I'd send the odd postcard. But, you know, postcards coming out of Hungary make it back to the States well after I'm back in Quebec City. So, you know, it was a short period of time. I was so young. I was so excited to be there and be in this situation. It didn't really matter. I got on public transportation. It was a straight shot of one bus ride to the university pool. It was, you know, I did I stand out as a, a blonde kid with a tan? For a month or so on the bus in Quebec City, I sure did. But, you know, it was uh, my French improved minimally. <laughs> it, it wasn't good to begin with, and it didn't get much better. So. Yeah, because back in Quebec in the 70s, yes. you needed to speak French. Yes, and there was a definite uh, separatist movement that was very prevalent at the time. And, you know, there still is that faction, and, and I understand that. And half of our team were French-speaking, and, and they're wonderful guys. And, and many of them would help translate, would meet me in a store because I didn't know how to go into a store and ask for toothpaste or whatever, and I was tired of turning around and walking out without any toothpaste because I couldn't, you know, find it or whatever. So uh, they were, you know, they were... Again, our relationship really bonded in the pool, and I've always had a, the mentality of being a team player, so it was very 
easy for me to assimilate within them and consider myself a teammate. Uh, you know, my, my teammates to this day, though, still call me the Yankee, uh, but that's just the wonderful abuse of friendship that, uh, that I received. What was it like traveling in Hungary in the 70s? That was uh, interesting. And, and the interesting part started before we even arrived. I can remember being on uh, the Hungarian airline, Malev airline, and all of a sudden our coach and manager are coming up to us and giving us some clothing, brand new clothing to put in our bags just to take in. And they just said, hold on to this. We'll get it from you when you go past customs. And they had run into some people on the plane that they knew that were bringing jeans and things home from, and I can't remember, I think we flew from Paris to Budapest and, and uh, they were, you know, trying to get these things through customs without having to pay duty or getting them confiscated. And so it started there. The, the second vivid memory was coming down. There was no jetway. There were, they would just wheel the stairs up to the side of the plane. We'd walk down the stairs and there were the bottom of the stairs were, you know, two or three Hungarian soldiers with machine guns strapped around them. And and then uh, the, the next vivid memory was going through customs where you would stand across from the customs official behind, and he was behind glass, but there was also a shelf so that you could only see him from the neck up. So anything that was on his desk, you couldn't see. You couldn't see what, what papers he was looking at. You couldn't see what he was doing with your passport. So it was just a, a little bit different. And uh, the other thing that I found out very easily was that I didn't have to exchange any currency because the we would exchange or we could exchange money for uh, the Hungarian currency at the time, which were forints. But if you had forints left over, they were worthless. You couldn't, ex much like rubles were within the Soviet Union at the same time, you couldn't bring them out of the country. No other country would accept them or exchange them. So but one of my teammates said, hey, bring an extra bathing suit and sell that for about 40 bucks and uh, because somebody will buy it from you immediately, and that'll be your spending money for the two weeks that you're there because all of our accommodations and transportations and food were all taken care of at the time. So it was very interesting, and my first international game, we played the uh, Hungarian national team. In a, we were in a tournament in Budapest. I should say my first official tournament uh, because we had been in Paris and, and in England prior to that. And the Hungarians were the best in the world. I think they were silver medalists at the Munich Olympics, but they had won the recent world championships and just had this powerhouse team of five players that were just dominating. And so I can remember... In the second quarter, I think it was, I got in and uh, we had the ball and all of a sudden the ball turned over and it was a fast break towards the other end and it was just myself and two Hungarians and I looked and one Hungarian was a gentleman by the name of Tomas Farago who was the best player in the world, uh, voted that for a number of years and on the other side was a gentleman who's, I think, uh, George Horkai, who was the best left-handed shooter in the world. And I had to make a decision which one I was going to cover and which one I was going to leave for our goalie, not that it mattered much. So I think I took, uh, went to Horkai, the left-hander. Uh, so, of course, they scored, and I was pulled out of the game at that point in time. And as I'm getting out of the water, my coach says to me, how could you leave the best player in the world unguarded? <laughs> I was in a no-win situation. If I had gone to him, he would have said, how can you leave the best left-handed shooter in the world unguarded? And then the game at halftime was tied 2-2. Two to two. And we were in our huddle poolside, and people were leaning over from the stands going, bravo, we didn't know the Canadians were so good. This is amazing. How gosh, this is, what a surprise. Fantastic. We ended up losing 14 to two. So, uh, <laughs> But you so, gave them at least half of a show, which yeah, they clearly so did not expect. The Hungarian team came out after halftime and just took it to us. It was, it was not pretty. The nice thing was because we had such a terrific Hungarian 
connection in that our coach was Hungarian, our team manager was Hungarian, and actually our captain, Gabor Chapregi, had gotten out from behind the Iron Curtain at the age of 18, come to Canada, and had made the national team, and he still had family in, in Hungary. And actually, Gabor, I can remember there being some rumblings of Gabor being nervous about going back on this trip and whether or not they would allow him, you know, free movement and freedom to leave again. So, which nothing happened, but I do remember that there was some potential concern. And also, I should mention that the technical director of Water Polo Canada at the time was a, a gentleman by the name of Rezo Galov, who is a very well-known sports journalist in Hungary and also, I think, was the minister of sport in Hungary for years or a title, something similar to that. And so because, again, of our Hungarian connection, uh, the Hungarian players and, and coaches were, were just incredibly gracious and generous to us when we were in the country. And we would go there a lot because we could always get great training games against uh, top-notch club teams. So the Hungarians and, and Budapest have a special place for me, for sure. So did you feel your game improving during that tour and after, even though you were getting walloped? Absolutely. Not just my skills, but my confidence, because I knew I was playing against some of the best players in the world. And while I, at that level, had not become a great scorer yet, I was becoming a contributor, and I wanted to make certain that my defensive skills were top-notch, that I wasn't letting any of these players score on me in one-on-one -on -one situations. And so that was my prime goal. You know, I would take the opportunities to shoot the ball and try to score when I had them, and I was constantly trying to create them. Uh, and I sort of carved out a niche for myself in that, in my latter time with that team, uh, especially during the Olympics, that I was the first or second substitute that would come in for maybe the last minute of a quarter. And so I sort of took it upon myself to try to re-energize the team and just stir up as much crap as I could within the game. So if I had to swim 10 yards out of my way to set a pick to get one of my teammates free, I, I would do that. I just, because I knew that my time in the water was going to be short, it was 110% all out for that period. I just was uh, tried to you know, be a maniac, especially on offense, and not be a liability on defense. So you go to Europe, you come back, and you've got six to eight weeks or so before the Olympics? So we did a tour to the U.S. and played the U.S. team. We also did a tour... In, I think we came to the U.S. in April for a week, 10 days, and went back to Quebec City. And then we went back to Europe for about a month. That's where we played in the Tungstrom Cup tournament in Budapest and did some exhibition games in another country or two. So, uh, And then came back, the team, we spent about a month together and the team was then selected. And I think after that selection period, we were sent on our way home for about a week and then reconvened in the Olympic Village for about, we were there about two to three weeks prior to the Games beginning. So you get to Montreal a few weeks before the Olympics. What was the mood in the city as they were getting ready? Uh, we didn't have a lot of time out at that point. We really, I, I mean, you could tell that there was uh, that there was excitement definitely growing just from my time at the airport and, and the way the crowds would start to be as we would leave the village on our buses. And, and because of what had taken place in Munich, security was a very, very different situation. And, and uh, so at the couple of gates that were the entrances to the Olympic Village, there were always Canadian soldiers there checking IDs and going through bags. Uh, when we were on the buses, we always had an escort and there were two or three soldiers, armed soldiers on the buses with us to uh, any training venues that we had, any competition venues that we were going to. 
So it was a very different situation. I didn't know any different. So to me, it all seemed very normal and that this is what uh, these were the precautions that had to be taken. But it was it was definitely there. And of course, uh, pin trading was great, both amongst the athletes and amongst the general public. And if you did go outside the village, people really didn't care what country you were from, what sport you were in. It's here, sign this, sign this, uh, which is very flattering. But at the same time, you're thinking, you don't even know who I am, do you? So, <laughs> but, but I wasn't going to be the one to rain on their parade. So I was happy to sign anything. I, you know, I'm sure I signed a few blank checks along the way as well. So. <laughs> well, Jill has been to the Montreal Village more recently than I have, but she actually stayed in the um, athletes' village because wow. now they it's condos somebody now. Has an, yeah, right. yeah. Somebody has an Airbnb there. Oh, so, fantastic! Yeah. So, what was your village life like? Well, we spent a lot of time in the music room. Uh, my a few of my teammates and I. There were a few teammates that spent a lot of time in the beer garden. Uh, I w- was not one of them, uh, although I we would join them every once in a while. So, yeah, it was really, you know, when, when we weren't there, we were in the music room. And I can remember <laughs> the one album that every athlete was trying to get a hold of that they had multiple copies was the Peter Frampton, Frampton Comes Alive <laughs> at the time. That was, everybody wanted to, it could, because it was like a library. You had to check out the album and then you went to a, con, a sort of a, a a console that was uh, there with headphones and you could just sit and listen to music and read or do whatever. So, and there were a number of those stations set up in this room, but uh, you know, it was, it was marvelous. The cafeteria was pretty much open 24 hours a day. We would, as a team, if we had been out separately or doing separate things and there were always evening events that were going on and welcoming of countries and things prior to the Olympics, if we were at different events, we would always meet in the cafeteria at 1030. We had an 11 p.m. curfew. And that was our coach had imposed. And we would uh, just get a, uh, get a meal to take up to the room and eat in the room. And, uh, you know, just what you needed to do, just pound a steak sandwich before bed, right before you go to sleep. But, you know, when you're young, and then we had a, a routine every night, in the village in our room so the rooms were set up as you said like condos but the living room was not what is now used as a living room in those condos was set up with four or five beds and the beds looked like they had come straight from ikea and each bed had sort of a matching what I want to sort of lockable locker that was horizontal and could double as a nightstand. And I mean, it was very, very well done. It it really was. So we would then gather with our food in the living room area and uh, which had five beds and we'd all sit on the floor, sit on the beds. And we got into this routine of tossing a hat around and we had to go around the entire team and you would toss it onto a teammate's head. And he couldn't move. And it just, we did this every night that we, and it was just, just became kind of a, a routine of good luck. The game start and you're playing on the second day. Did you go to opening ceremonies? I did. We were, by our coach, discouraged from going. And there were a number of players that didn't march in the opening ceremonies. And the reason being is because we did play on the first day of the competition started. And it was a five hour ordeal of being on your feet. But from the time of lining up, marching to the stadium from where we lined up to marching in and standing on the field, going through the whole ceremonies to then marching out and back to the village. So and it was five hours. So there were a couple of guys, or quite a few guys that did not march. And But I thought, I- I'm going. I, you know, I may never have this opportunity again, and, and I don't want to miss this. And, and I'm not sure how much I'll be playing, and I will just make sure that I'm ready to go the first day. So I'm glad I did, and I'm you know, glad I was there with my teammates that did march. So you come into the stadium. Canada comes in last as the host. What is that moment? 
So for me, the moment was a little extra special because as we came through the tunnel and turned the corner onto the track, I looked up and there were my parents uh, and there was my father with the Super 8 camera taking a picture of me. And also at the time, unfortunately, the opening ceremonies were very rigid. It wasn't this free-for-all walk in and do whatever. So we had to line up. We had to, you know, march somewhat in step. And we were told you are not allowed to bring any cameras in. So I brought a little Instamatic and just stuffed it in the front waistband of my pants. And so my father has a Super 8 movie of me reaching into my waistband and pulling out the Instamatic camera and taking a picture of him uh, filming me. So that was extra special. Uh, I mean, it really was. That was pretty neat. Uh, and in true form for every home movie that my father took, every home movie that he took was out of focus, and this one was no different. So that wonderful <laughs> moment is a complete blur. But how did your picture come out? I am blur. Uh, my picture was blurred also. <laughs> so because I was, you know, I couldn't stop and take a picture. I had to continue marching in line. So yeah, I unfortunately was separated from my teammates. We did once we were on the uh, the middle of the field, we did regroup and we all marched out. We were actually the last group of athletes to leave the stadium upon the exit of the opening ceremony. So. Okay, so this is something I've always wondered. How did they line you up? Like, do they line you up by sport, alphabetically? Like, how did they put you together? I, I think they allowed you to line up as you wanted to. And my teammates and I wanted to be sort of on in the last row and on the outside of the track so that in any future pictures, movies, whatever, we could find ourselves. We knew where we were. And I had made the decision that the I didn't like the shoes that were issued by the Canadian team to wear. So and they were sort of white nurse's shoes. And you know, really immature decision on my part. So I decided I had a sort of very light tan suede boat moccasin type of shoe. And as I'm standing there, lined up on the outside, one of the parade gatherers comes along and says, no, those shoes are not going to fly. You're on the inside of the track. And that's how I got separated from my teammates, because they didn't want my dark shoes. And I have since found a picture of the Canadian team marching down the uh, track, and I can pick myself out because of those dark shoes. So... <laughs> In a way, I guess it. Uh, I, I made my mark that I could still find myself. But again, you would, you would not have been a good bridesmaid, John. No, very immature decision, and uh, I freely admit that now. Uh, but you, you were know, 19. I mean, come on, you were a baby. I was. I just wasn't conforming to wearing the nurse's shoes, and you know, my teammates were. What's What's the big deal? And they were right. What was the big deal? What else did you get to see of the competitions? in 76. Our event was the first week. And so on the second week, I did go to see some track and field. I was not able to see any swimming. Uh, I'm trying to remember what else. I believe some volleyball as well. I don't remember what else. Oh, European handball. That was the other thing, which I think is a fantastic sport because it's like water polo without the water in many ways. And I had never seen European handball before. Competition-wise, were you ready for the first match, which was against Germany? Well, we came into the competition on a pretty good high in that we had beaten the U.S. in the U.S. Even though the U.S. hadn't qualified, it was still uh, a milestone for us. And we had beaten the Germans in West Germany about four or five weeks before. So we knew we could compete, but we didn't know that we couldn't really handle the opening day jitters. And, and also our first game against Germany, since we had beaten them on their home turf, 
they were truly out for revenge. And uh, so we got skunked 5-0 in our, our opening game. And we were not the team that, you know, even though it was the same guys, we just didn't play like we had played a month earlier, unfortunately. And then you were also in the same group as Hungary, which was your next game. Yes, we were. And uh, we ended up losing to the Hungarians 4-2, to two, uh, which we felt was a very respectable score. And again, sort of filled us with a lot of confidence in, in moving forward. And the Hungarians were the eventual gold medal winners of that Olympics. So, and then rounding out your group play, uh, you won against Australia. Uh, we did, and that was one. I was able to score a goal there from the center position, uh, which uh, was thrilling for me. And then, so how this tournament worked was they had group play, and then they bucketed everybody into two different groups, a medal round group and then a consolation group. And because you only had the one win, you were in the consolation group. So you played Australia again. Yes, we did. And then... Uh and then you're facing a bunch of different player, or di different teams. So right. So we had Iran, which we also defeated. Uh, we defeated Australia again for a second time. Um, we felt pretty confident again against the Australians. We had scrimmaged against them a few times in the upcoming weeks while we were in the village, and felt you know pretty good as to how we stacked up against them. Uh, Iran was sort of an unknown. And then we uh, were surprised to find ourselves up against the Soviet Union team. And uh, I think that was one of the big surprises in that the Soviets had not made the top group. And you ended up tying with them, which we was did. really interesting. We did. We, it was a battle, and we, again, that was a, a big landmark for our, our team as well that had never happened. And we sort of joked afterwards, well, I guess there's a few coaches out of a job now uh, in the Soviet Union, unfortunately. But that's the way their system worked. But it was, it was a very tough, close, nerve-wracking game. So I un unfortunately had a somewhat of a breakaway with a couple seconds remaining. And I they got the ball to me, and I had more time left than I thought. I knew I only had a short period of time. So instead of swimming another stroke or two with the ball, picking the ball up, setting myself, and getting a shot, I just grabbed the ball and wailed it at the goal, and it sailed over the cage. And there was about you know a minute and a tenth, or a second and a tenth left. And had I taken that second and tenth and a tenth, uh, it might have been a different story, and I did what I I did what I thought I had at the time, and and uh, I, I knew the the clock was running down, and but I've replayed that play over and over a few times in my uh, in my mind. So the tournament ends, and Canada finishes ninth, which on paper doesn't sound great, but it was actually historical, like Canada's best finish. So what would your coaches think, and of how the team did well exactly along those lines and and the same with the hierarchy at water polo canada they were very grateful and thankful for what we had put forth in the water and we had been 16th in the world two years prior so we had definitely you know climbed a little bit and it was a way for the canadians to enter the arena and not be taken lightly um, that there were athletes in the pools that w were going to give these top tier teams issues. You know, our goalie, a uh, gentleman by the name of Guy Leclerc, was just uh, fantastic. Uh, I just, uh, you know, he was uh, constantly being considered as one of the top goalies in the world. We did have a player on the 76 team, Paul Pottier, who was named to the all-world team at that time, and deservedly so. So we, as a group, felt that we had accomplished a lot, and the coaches and our, uh, as I said, the Water Polo Canada were, were very, very appreciative. And, and you know, it's the, the one thing that our team has really stuck together after all these years, you know, we, we get together periodically 
and but it may be four or five years, but we just fall back right into the same same things, and it's just it's like seeing your brother. So you know, it's wonderful. You decided not to keep going. Yes. After seventy six, what yes. what was that decision about? Uh, it was based on a number of things. Uh, the boycott in the games in Moscow of 80, getting on with life. And I had a tough transition time coming back. It's spoken about a lot more today. You know, Michael Phelps is doing commercials for uh, athletes' depression when they're, when they're done with the games. And, and so... It was really something that I had to handle myself. The whole, the whole sort of ordeal. My my parents were very loving parents and gave gave me the values and morals that I grew up with. And and but in this situation, they didn't know a lot about it, and so they kind of left all the dealings both prior to getting on the national team and and afterwards to me too. And I was definitely you know, not mature enough to be able to do it on myself or mature enough to be able to know how to reach out and, and ask for help. And and so I really struggled in a lot of ways with that, not to make it an excuse. It's just looking back that, that I've been able to analyze that was sort of why I didn't continue. I, I stayed on the national team for a year and a half or so more and and, you know, would meet up and do summer tournaments and things like that. Uh, and travel with the squad, but it was sort of I, I was done because I didn't know how to to maneuver through the paths that I needed to maneuver through at the time. It is interesting, like that you had this whole very intense competitive year, and it culminates in this huge event. And then, what did, what did you feel like when it was done, and and trying to get back to what? your life was like before, but you're now a different person. Well, it was, you know, my parents had put the emphasis on school. So that was really, you know, how is water polo going to carry you, you know, into your future? And it's, it's not like it is today where athletes can make a living coming out of sports or some athletes can. So, and I went back to a situation at Santa Barbara where, because I had left early, I was forced to redshirt. Um, so I set out that year. I did still practice with the team, and, you know, before I left Santa Barbara, I, uh, there was a lot of animosity, like, who is this kid that's going to play on the national team? Uh, you know, he's, he's certainly not the best player here at UC Santa Barbara as a freshman. Who, who is this kid? How does he get this? So there were older guys that, you know, juniors and seniors that looked at me, the freshman, saying, who is this kid? And, and when I came back, that feeling was still prevalent. Like, who is this kid? Who does he think he was? You know, the one benefit that I had was that I was a much different player when I came back. And so I think I very quickly earned the respect of my teammates at Santa Barbara in the water. But it was just a, a different situation. And as I said, I was not mature enough to handle it. So and didn't know how to reach out to get somebody in the team at, at UC Santa Barbara had gone through a coaching change, the coach that had recruited me and, and brought me there, had left and gone to Stanford, where he had a very successful water polo career at Stanford, coaching their teams with a number of NC2A titles. And so, you know, and, and I, I have a lot of, you know, mixed feelings about that time as well, where, you know, I made a lot of mistakes. And that's, I don't want to call it a regret, but if I were to do things over, there would be a lot of things I would do differently there. But seriously, what 19, 20-year-old does it right? Right. Well, you... I think that I think now there is more of an infrastructure that's built, and and co coaches also have a different mentality. And uh, yeah, it was a different time. It's interesting. It's interesting how things have evolved, and thankfully, more towards the positive aspect. I think so. I, I think that uh, in in that regard, yes, uh, it still baffles me as to you know, how slow national organizations, national sport organizations are to react to different situations and, and how things 
get swept under the rug and that ultimately appear and make the situation even worse. You know, we could cite a number of examples and, and things have changed and things are changing quickly, but these organizations need to realize that they need to change along with them and get with the times and whether that's protecting the athletes or being aware of, you know, where the media is going and, and how that playing field is changing when it comes to sports and, and the Olympics and how that all sort of ties back in. So that's a part that is still frustrating and, and that athletes are still dealing with, unfortunately. There have been a lot of strides, but it, uh, it, it has to be more than just lip service, I think, and, and jumping on a bandwagon because, you know, issues are getting a lot of press. And then a year later when there is no press, well, that support system is kind of gone and, and not there. So there, there's still a ways to go. Okay, we can't end on a down note. <laughs> so I have a very important question that we learned about when we talked to uh, Tony Acevedo. Have you ever had a wardrobe mal- malfunction during a game? Uh, I have not, fortunately. And uh, one of the things that, well, back then the rule was that you had to wear two suits. And I don't know if that is still a rule or not, but in case the top suit ripped. So at the time, I had, at a tournament in Europe, I had traded something with an Italian player for a rubberized suit. Uh, that was made by an Italian company called Diana, which may or may not still exist. And I had also somehow come upon and traded for what was called a paper suit that the swimmers were wearing that were very sort of very lightweight and very almost paper thin. They still had elasticity to them, but they were very thin. So I would wear the paper suit underneath the rubber suit, and that would satisfy the two-suit minimum. Actually, there is... I have seen footage of the Canadian team after the team introductions of us gathering around the bench and me pulling my team suit off and putting the blue rubber suit on right there on the pool deck because I had a suit on underneath, but because I wanted to wear the, the uh, rubber suit to, it was, it would be slick in the water and, uh, and it wouldn't tear. So, but Prior to having the rubber suit, I did not have any uniform malfunctions other than the wrong shoes at the opening ceremonies in the Montreal. (laughs) Well, John, thank you. Thank you, guys. Always fun to talk to you, John. Thank you so much, John. Oh, it was so much fun to hear the stories. They were great. And I I know we cut stuff out and we will... There were certain things we couldn't air. <laughs> what what happened in Montreal had to stay in Montreal. But yeah, he was very forthcoming with stories, which was right. a lot of fun. It's so much fun to hear stuff from back in the 70s. And Okay, so I have to tell you, I forgot to tell you the story last week when we talked about Innsbruck, because I have been to Innsbruck. Oh, yes. yes. You, you've spent a lot of time in that part of the world. Right. So I did my uh, study abroad in Vienna. And one weekend, some friends and I decided that we'd like to go skiing in Innsbruck. Now, as you know, I grew up in the Midwest. So skiing to us is not the same as skiing in the Alps. I would expect so. <laughs> so we went to Innsbruck. And the other thing about the study abroad that you need to know is that when the organizers told us what to pack, they recommended that you get a trench coat that had a zip-out lining because then it could go from winter, which is when I started, to spring. And I will have you know that my mother took that advice to heart. So I had a London fog, you know, 19 going on. As we 45, all five, yes. We, you know what? If if this is, we're talking about what early nineties, mid nineties, nineteen ninety-two. Okay, we all had that ridiculous London fog trench coat with right. the zip-out lining. Exactly. Okay, so wait a second. Did you go skiing in your trench coat? Well, I have a picture here of me and my roommate at the ski slopes in. In Innsbruck. And I am wearing my trench coat there. But I did pack it away for when I went down the run. Thank goodness. Because I think it would have killed me. So that, so that, oh, that nice. I like that picture. Okay, so we will, yes. we will post we'll some see. of these. Yes, yes. So that, um, yeah. 
So we went to the women's downhill run. Oh, yeah. So uh, for, from 1976. And the first bit of course when you don't ski very well or haven't skied very often is you do the bunny hill and the bunny hill was it was not very steep at all it was super easy the hardest Good thing for, for a me, midwesterner yes but the hardest thing for me was getting up the bunny hill because i was used to like the rope pull that you had when you go up a bunny hill but this had that t-bar pull have you ever been on those no. where there's a little kind of plastic t-bar thing that you're supposed to sit on one side of it and kind of lean back and then that kind of tugs you up but i got i got so turned around that i i was like water skiing up the hill you know i ended up flipping <laughs> right in so, your trench coat and, and then i uh i don't think i was in my trench coat at this point but i did the bunny hill a couple of times and then i said well this is easy i'll just go up to the big hill and it was you know take the a gondola very, up kind of thing a very big hill very big hill and i'm wearing sweater and jeans at this point because that's what what you do you you look like this you're excited to go down the hill oh you, you look very stylish right you look, right you look very appropriately austrian right okay so that's good and you get to the top of the hill and the first thing is a big sign that says don't go off the trail in multiple languages and then there's like a little hairpin turn to get you to the face of the mountain. And so I was taking that hairpin turn, but I couldn't turn very well. So I went right off the trail into snow up to my hips. And you know how fast that downhill skiers get down the mountain. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. So took me one hour. <laughs> I vividly remember it. Anytime I started going remotely fast. Well, I, hey, I had to crawl out of snow up to my hips while I'm wearing skis. I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. And, and I get down. Anytime I started going remotely fast, I would just fall and stop myself. So I get to the bottom of the mountain. I am so tired. I am head to toe snow literally head to toe snow and my one friend looks at me and goes what happened to you and i said well i went off the turn right at the top and i got stuck in snow and i said well he tells you not to go off the trail like dude midwest you, you, you were schnee woman yes exactly so but then we also went to the ice skating rink and we went ice skating wait 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 did you skate on the dorothy hamill rink i did skate on the dorothy hamill rink you can see me yes in, you are in my trench coat glory skating on the dorothy hamill rink well i can do you one better i have been skating at the rink that is actually called the dorothy hamill oh, rink get out of town yeah it's in you greenwich connecticut you have to put that on our map mm. good point we have what's been going on in our facebook group for a while but we'll make the link public we've been working on a map of olympic sites around the world and they don't have to be necessary they're you know olympic venues and olympic cities but they could also be statues or buildings named after olympians anything that's got an olympic flair to it anything that our people would want to go visit that they right. may not know about Exactly. So we'll make that link public. We'll post it on social as well. And feel free to add the edit access is open so you can add anything you want. Just make sure it's Olympic. It's very exciting to see what people have put up there so far. They've covered I think, Atlanta and L.A.'s and California has been pretty well covered. There are some interesting statues out there. Yeah. That's what I have discovered from the map. Excellent. Well, we'd love to have your help in doing that. And if you are self-isolating, you might have a need an activity to do. Throw a couple of dots on the map for us. Well, let's move on to our Team Olympic Fever update. Tofu. Our Taekwondo athlete, Madeline Gorman Shore, won gold in her weight class at the G2 Costa Rica Open. Before everything shut down. Exactly. Yeah, a few people got in their last competitions before stuff shut down. Uh, our diver, Laura Wilkinson, competed in the Spring Roundup Invitational in San Antonio, Texas, and placed third. And she was just 3.65 points out of first. But as you said, she wasn't thrilled with her performance. She was disappointed with how she dived. 
But the cutest thing is when she received her bronze, all her kids came and stood on the <gasps> podium with her. Oh. She posted that on her Instagram, and it's really oh, a fantastic picture. I wanted to go see that. Snowboarder Chloe Kim has announced that she will return to competition next season after taking a year away from the halfpipe. But it's nice that she's coming back. I hope she had a good she time off. Finished high school. <laughs> Maybe started a little college. I don't know, because yeah. she's 12. <laughs> It'll be good to see her back on the circuit. That's for sure. And see how she will rip it up, shred it. Oh, cut it out. Cry. Okay. And finally, congratulations to our Kiwi Connection, Dr. Michael Warren, who is starting a new position as team lead at the Ministry of Business Innovation and Employment in New Zealand. Well, he probably already started because, you know, New Zealand is in the future. Oh, yeah, I guess so. So hope you had a good first day. <laughs> but maybe not because we're all self-isolated. No, that's true, too. Uh, moving on to Tokyo 2020 news. <laughs> been a week it has been a week and i'll say it's wednesday night here in on the east coast and by the time you listen to this things may have changed already the ioc currently is still saying the games will go on as planned they issued an official statement on tuesday march 17th that said we're moving forward we are all gung-ho to make it happen on the dates that were originally scheduled. Right. So athletes prepare as best as you can, and they will be revising and uh, publishing qualifications for some events because a lot of events are happening that need qualification points or the trials were happening and they've just, everything's been pretty much canceled or postponed at this point. So it's really hard for the athletes who still need to qualify to get the points they are required to have in order to qualify. So that's got to be a little frustrating and confusing for everyone involved. You know, you're talking about a lot of moving parts and things. Time magazine reported that there are still about 4,700 out of nearly 11,000 Olympic spots that have yet to be decided. I mean, at least in the United States, big teams like the athletics team and the swimming team weren't going to have their their Olympic trials until June. So, so they may go off on time. Right. We right. don't know. We don't, right. So we are still watching everything, waiting to see what happens. We're trying. It's really hard to not get caught up in all of the what's going to happen fever, so to speak, because there's a lot of calls to cancel, a lot of calls to postpone, a lot of, hey, what's going on? Hey, this is going on in the back room. We don't know what's going on. We don't know. So... Um, we didn't talk about this beforehand, but I think it's pretty safe to say we're not going to speculate on this one. Yes. We're just going to tell you what we know and what, what has been officially decided because we don't know what's happening with COVID-19 from one day to the next. Sometimes what we hear in the morning is not what we hear at night. Mm -hmm. So we know everybody is working as hard as they can to keep this all together, you know, to keep the Olympics on track, to keep people safe, to keep people healthy. And we just don't know. And we will let you know as soon as we know. And exactly. we'll keep talking exactly. about it on Facebook and we will share information as soon as we see it. Exactly. What, some things that have happened in the U.S., at least the Olympic training centers have temporarily closed. They closed on the 17th and resident athletes who were there can still stay on site. But anybody who was off-premise could not have access to the facilities for up to 30 days. And then Chad Wittenberg, who is the board chair and federation president for USA Shooting, was on the Tokyo Planning Facebook group and said that they're getting multiple updates a day on what's happening. And currently, the USOPC is directing all the national governing bodies to, to continue on as planned. So they're just trying to do what they can. I'm sure trainers are trying to come up with workouts, trying to keep some kind of focus. If you follow any of the athletes on Instagram or Facebook, they've been posting some of their creative training <laughs> right. methods. I've seen, I've seen an interesting pole vault one. <laughs> yes. And there was someone who set up hurdles in their hallway 
like of an oh. apartment building. Okay. There was a Spanish karate athlete who was doing this and is doing like a Facebook live teaching you the katas. Mm-hmm. So okay. people are trying to stay connected. They're trying to stay active. I'm doing my best couch training right now. Okay. That's I good. have, I have added some snack supplements. Okay. So that training is continuing on. I, I think I'm doing okay with it. Good, 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 good. I'm taking hotter than usual showers to get used to the humidity for Tokyo. We just got to keep a positive attitude because right. there's not too much any of us can do. Exactly, so exactly. Hang right. on, and we're all going to be exactly. okay. Right, because stuff is happening. The, the sad thing is that the Netherlands... Olympic Committee announced that Heineken House will not be happening. Now, Heineken House is the infamous team house for Team Netherlands, and they they said they just won't be able to put it together in time with so much uncertainty going on. So that's kind of the first sign of things I've seen. Will anything else happen? I don't know, but uh, still remains to be seen what people will be able to do and what the IOC and the Olympics can be able to do and the organizing committee can do. Ah, We're not going to end on a sad note. Okay, what are we going to end on? We're going to end on, we are coming up with our new name and That's we right. were very excited for all the submissions that we got. It was yes, a lot thank of fun. You. We had a long list to go through. It's taking some time. We've narrowed it down. But uh, I think we have our top three that they have not been placed yet. I feel like it's old school figure skating right where it's like we haven't done the placements yet they've got their <laughs> scores and now we've got to start through the placement so that and, and part of that placement will be making sure that we could won't get in trouble for using this name so won't get banned like <laughs> like the judge from france from the the oh Olympic yeah from the book we read yeah exactly oh speaking of book club mm-hmm. book club is coming up yes if you haven't read Book Club yet, we are talking about it very soon. And uh, we are reading Games of Deception by Andrew Marinus. And it is about the U.S. Uh, at the 1936 Berlin Games playing basketball. And it's also a quick coming read. Up, yeah, it's mm-hmm. a good read. Mm-hmm. And also coming up is Move Club. Exactly. We're going to be doing that soon. So that's Miracle, mm-hmm. uh, the, bo- the movie about the 1980 U.S. hockey team, Kurt Russell, in 1980 fabulousness. <laughs> Did you watch it? I have not watched it yet. I uh, I wanted to watch it as close to when we tape as possible because mm-hmm. I want to because I've never seen this movie. I did watch the trailer and I'm like, I'm gonna get to see a whole movie with Kurt Russell with that hair. Oh, and he looks so much like her Brooks. It's really good. He does. So, yeah. so some things to keep you busy while you are stuck at home. That will wrap it up for this. Let us know what you think about our two shows in 1976 and what you're doing to survive your self-isolation. Email us at olimfever at gmail.com. Call our voicemail hotline at 530-70-FEVER. We're Olimfever on Twitter and Insta and Olympic Fever Podcast Group on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. Wow, hang out with sophomores in high school and get driven around to these things? I'm in.